0: W media spy talk, a podcast at the
1: intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Jean Meserve.
2: Welcome to the 11th edition of the spy talk podcast. I'm Jeff Stein.
1: And I'm Gene Maserv Great to have you all aboard. Uh, coming up, I'm going to be talking to a former top FBI official, Jay Tabb, about just how difficult it is to find and investigate domestic terrorists. His bottom line is pretty
0: sobering. I hate to say it, I'm, I'm, a, I'm almost, uh, <laughs> I'm a crazy optimist that we can always get it right. But it all, honestly, it, it makes prevention You're almost down to a zero. and You can't detect who they are.
2: Wow, Gene, what a dilemma these insurrectionists pose for the FBI and other law enforcement agencies. I'm really looking forward to the rest of your interview with JTAB. Meanwhile, there was an explosion of reports over the past few weeks that a Chinese counterintelligence official had defected to the U.S. last February. These reports got tied up in the Wuhan lab controversy, anti-Chinese, right-wing, and pro-Trump. Online sites alleged that Dong Jinwei, that's his name, the top counter spy in China's Ministry of State Security, had brought with him information that would show that the COVID 19 virus escaped the Wuhan lab, and further, that there was a secret military research unit doing business there. We reported on that swirling controversy over at the Spy Talk newsletter as well. And after a couple of days, the Biden administration took the very unusual step of calling me up and authoritatively denying that Zhongqingwei had defected to the US. To sort this all out, I called up Nick F. Demiades, who recently retired from the US government after spending 30 years in the government watching China and particularly Chinese intelligence operations. Welcome to Spy Talk. Nick, what do you make of all this talk of a Chinese defector? True or not? Um, Not. Uh, Or at least not this
3: time. And uh, we're talking about uh, Dong Jingwei, who was his, the head of counterintelligence in the Ministry of State Security, in China's Ministry of State Security. And uh, rumors float, and, and this one came out of China, that he defected. So. Uh, you know, not true. Um, Interesting how it started, though, and why it started.
2: That's uh, one of the first questions I had. It was pushed by right-wing and pro-Trump and pro-Taiwan news sites and commentary here, Um, but uh, I began to suspect it might be a Chinese ploy as well. What's your theory on that? I think more likely it
3: is um, that people in China routinely use this type of activity in the Party, uh, in the CCP, the ruling Chinese Communist Party, to try and um, uh, to try and lower other people, to raise questions into other people, to cause dissension in the ranks. Uh, you know, this is interesting political warfare all the time, and it did. This rumor did come out of China. So that's where it starts. That's where you look for your answers.
2: Hmm. So you think that this is a move against uh, Dong Jingwei, uh, who is the top counter spy in China. That's pretty brazen. Uh, Does this signal some sort of power struggle between uh, the top communist party leadership and the Ministry of State Security, the all-powerful Ministry of State Security?
3: No, not not necessarily, uh, not necessarily at all. It could be as uh, simply as explained as people trying to figure out who's talking in America, who's leaking stuff, um, you know, something like that, where they're just seeding, you know, rumors in just to find out who's running and calling up America and you know and letting them know what's happening. So it could be any number of things, um, but it, it's not something that would be effective you know, and actually um, unseating the guy, but uh, because he's in Beijing and everybody knows that. So it's not really gonna have an effect on him. The question of how and why it got started are the real ones where you would look for answers.
2: Well, let's go, let's address that for a little bit without going deep down into the wormhole. Uh, what makes you say that the rumors were started in China itself? I mean, they re, uh, the suspicion was that, uh, Uh, the thrust of this information uh, was to cast doubt on the uh, operations of the Wuhan uh, virology lab Uh, and China has been fighting that off. So why do you think this originated in China itself?
3: Well, the first we actually know of it was um, released by uh, Dr. Han, you know, Han Nian Chao, who talked about it uh, publicly that, you know, tweeted about it that he had heard this from contacts in Taiwan. Now, Uh,
2: Dr. Han is a Chinese exile himself. He's a former foreign ministry official who defected here after the Tiananmen uh, massacre in 1989. Yes. And he
3: is a very, very pro-democracy advocate, uh, which got him on Beijing's Naughty Boy list. Uh, Mm -hmm. The man's a lawyer and a PhD, so a a PhD biologist. And I've known him for, you know, 25 years and experienced high level of integrity. So, but so he wouldn't lie about anything. The question is, who gave him this information and why? Hmm. Knowing that a man with 90,000 people following him on Twitter that would release that publicly. So who so in China
2: might, yeah. thought it
3: in their interests to to release through that channel?
2: Yeah, what better person to convey these rumors uh, than a noted pro-democracy activist? Correct. Hmm. Correct. Now, what's this, What's going on with Chinese defectors in the U.S.? Have we been successful uh, at uh, harvesting uh, dissidents and uh, uh, malcontents in China to come uh, come well, to the United States? Let's let's like so much in the intelligence community or the wilderness as,
3: of mirrors, as the counterintelligence world is called. Let's say that's a yes and no. Uh, hmm. There's an official level of defectors, like we had uh, Li Jinghua, was uh, chief of staff for the former president, Hu Jintao, hmm. right? so he was chief of staff from 2007 to 2012. He defected.
2: Wow. Great. That would be like the White House chief of staff defecting to China.
3: It would. And, uh, and, and his role specifically during that time as chief of staff was managing all the secret communications right? What they call the secretariat role. So he had access to everything. Uh, so there's an example of a successful, you know, um, uh, defection that becomes public.
2: Now, when did he come over and what happened to him?
3: Um, he came over in uh, 2016. Uh, the Chinese government sent a Ministry of Public Security delegation to was a U.S. prosecutor's office in Los Angeles, I believe, Uh, Trying to make the case that he had stolen millions of dollars and uh, was accused of rapes and things like that, back uh, abusing his power, you know, and that um, they wanted him back, wanted him to be uh, deported back. Mm -hmm. The uh, prosecutor's office said no.
2: That's quite an interesting public move for China to make. Uh, It's sort of validating that he was uh, a high-level official who had defected. So I guess the idea was just to. Uh, muddy his reputation.
3: Well, they, they they do this all the
2: time. They uh,
3: because we get now this is on the less than official level. We have a number of Chinese businessmen or people who are quasi involved with state owned enterprises or people have vast fortunes in China that move their money to the United States through the EB five visa program, the business visa program, uh, and then they gain green cards and they move the family and their wealth to the U S. In fact. China has had quite a problem with that and trying to stem that flow that's happening of people hedging their bets. If the Xi Jinping regime is sort of out of control, too authoritarian, it looks like they may be coming under the microscope of the CCP, they flee or they send their families to flee.
2: Do we know if some of them, some of these emigres are top government officials, or uh, in particular security officials, intelligence officials? Well, we know. I'll not answer that on the part of the
3: U.S. government, Okay. Uh, but, um, you know, the person does have to list on the visa, what they do, uh, you know, what, where their money basically is coming from, or, you know, X amount of dollars. It has to be a wired transfer that the U S can monitor and understand. So uh, as filling out any visa form, you know, you're, you're subject to believing what's on the visa, but on the visa, you do have an understanding of what is, um, of what the person has done for a living. So typically you don't have a lot, you do have government officials, but they do it through family members. So now it becomes a very complex game of trying to trace back, you know, who this person's related to, who are their immediate, you know, family members and trying to find where it leads to a government official on the other side. That is extremely complex and difficult. Really? It's a lot easier in the case of business persons, you know, executives from different Chinese companies, but because in China, they move money a lot to things like family members and close friends. Uh, it's an entire black market, as it's even known in China, mm-hmm. in moving money. It, it's a reality behind why the digital currency laws were put into place in China.
2: Now, if a high level official or businessman wants to get out of China, do they have to make a personal visit to the U.S. embassy or a U.S. consulate in China?
3: Well, typically, yes, um, that's if they're doing it uh you know, through that means, but they wouldn't be smart to do it that way.
2: Right, because uh, our embassies and consulates, consulates under the close watch of Chinese intelligence.
3: Right, so what they would do is move to, uh, you know, go to another country and then defect
2: from there. Uh-huh. Uh that makes sense. Now, what can you tell us about other high-level Chinese uh, defectors? Um, well, previously we had uh, the other very well-known cases,
3: um, uh, Yu Changcheng, who defected, I think back in 1985.
2: Right. And he was- And C- he brought with him information that there was a mole right. in the CIA. Correct. Larry Wu Tai Chin yep.
3: or Jin Wu Dai is a Chinese name. Yeah, and he actually was able to identify um, that mole and or at least, you know, the placement and access, as it's called of that individual. And uh, that led to the arrest and conviction of Larry Chin.
2: Larry Chin had worked for some 37 years, I think, for first for the U.S. Army and then the CIA. I mean, that was a long term, very successful op on the part of the Chinese.
3: Oh, in fact, um, Larry Chin, when he was in college in China, uh, his English was so good that when he was going to um, sign up for the Chinese Communist Party, his friend told him, his roommate actually told him, no, don't do that. There are other ideas for you. Uh, so don't sign up for the CCP. Don't flag yourself that way. And it was from there he moved to the Hong Kong, started translating, worked for the army, worked for the army in Korea, um, doing prisoner debrief, mm. So, which was horrific for those people that we debriefed and said, hey, I don't want to go back to China, or when I go back to China, I'll work for you, as some of them did. And Larry Wu Tai-Chin was doing the translations right there. Mm. So any of those people who went back who weren't completely supportive of the PPC, were CCP were executed.
2: Mm. Now, as an intelligence professional, you kind of got to admire a a long-term mole operation like that. We should be so lucky to have one in the the, the heart of China's uh, intelligence service, right?
3: Now, not not only um, was he handled for almost 40 years without giving an indication that he was involved with espionage, and that includes even during times we had polygraphs uh, as a normal process, but the Chinese government never did anything to reveal the fact that they had access to additional information. They knew Nixon was gonna open up relations They never did anything to indicate that they had advanced notice Mm -hmm. of anything. Mm -hmm. So there's an entire what we call OPSEC, Operation Security, uh, component of their political apparatus that's interwoven with their intelligence collection.
2: Nick, there have been many stories over the years that there exists another Chinese mole or two at CIA. Do you have any thoughts about that? One or two? Yeah, I
3: would think that there are. many upon many and not only at cia but elsewhere in the government as well
2: that's extraordinary i mean nick you're you're one of our top experts on chinese intelligence you think that there's a honeycomb of chinese agents in our security services
3: oh i i i know it um yeah they really are pretty uh pretty aggressive they move well and they have done well historically um so uh yeah i and seeing their actions as I have, uh, you know, the, the FBI does some good work. I give them credit. They, they, they do some good work, but I mean, they're completely outmatched in numbers and volumes and uh, you know, it, it's, imp- and you know, they suffer. They don't have language capabilities. They don't have um, they're, they're very limited as you know, their approach on it is an enforcement one. Most of the time, they're sort of very heavy handed. I think in, in, in a lot of works in the intelligence world. So, um, but and, and China dances around them a lot.
2: Again, you're an expert on Chinese intelligence. You've written a a couple of books about Chinese espionage. Uh, so I have to ask you, it begs the question, are we talking tens, uh, of Chinese agents in our security services, uh, hundreds, thousands, you got a ballpark figure? Yeah, I, I, I think if we're talking just
3: the, the intelligence community, the 17 agencies, you know, including the DNI, I'd be stunned if there weren't dozens, um, absolutely stunned if there weren't dozens. Hmm. Um, uh, and, you know, different levels of reporting, right? Some people might not be giving classified information, but they might be reporting on the personality of Nick or someone at the office or, mm-hmm. and then there's this secondary group of access agents around that. Who are reporting who's in the ic and you know where they're living mm-hmm. and things like that so there, there's there's different levels of people that are reporting inside the core area like the most secret areas that people are passing classified information the number's much smaller you know probably less than a dozen but mm. when you start including that, those areas out then you get into political ranks and congressional and think tanks and all others that contractors are- Contractors all influence areas
2: around that core intelligence thing, then you're talking dozens and dozens. Mm-hmm. So they would be interested in, in penetrating, say, the transportation department or the commerce department as well, because these uh, departments deal with American infrastructure.
3: And actually, yes. And, and with China, you need, you know, China doesn't concern itself so much about secrets um, as, as, we do, you know, if looking at the CCP. It concerns itself with policy. What is the U.S. thinking? In Congress, who's gonna vote for what relative to China? What staffers have influence over what members of Congress so they can shut off policy ranks? What think tanks are listened to in Congress and by the administration so that they can influence those think tanks? What academic institutions have that type of power and influence? So um, we all see things through a lens through our own cultural and, and you know educational lenses, they're no different. Mm-hmm. So they look at that surrounding infrastructure of academia, think tanks, etc., as a primary areas to recruit to understand what um, policies are shaping up in the United States, who's supporting what, and then how they can influence those
2: business as well. Right now, uh, no Russia is notorious for trying to track down and sometimes successfully. Uh, assassinate defectors, what's China's policy? Are, are they as uh, uh, brutal, let's say, in tracking down defectors and uh, eliminating them? No, um,
3: let, let's put defectors into two categories. There's this whole world of dissidents and people who leave China from a state-owned corporation, state-owned uh, enterprise or something like that, who aren't official defectors, right? But they've left China, they've gotten their families out and um, you know, and the Chinese government comes after them. If they're dissidents, the Chinese government comes after them to silence them. And what I mean by comes after them is threatens them, identifies them to threaten them in the United States, threatens their families back in China, exerts pressure on them in every way they can to try and get those people to come back to China you know, for to face China's version of justice. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. typically that, and that we've seen that in the Ministry of Public Security operatives working here in the United States, right? So, and, and globally, seeing the same thing globally.
2: And again, so, death yeah. threats would be, um, you know, that's a crime in the United States, but uh, the FBI is just overmatched again on this court.
3: Right, and, and you know, it, it takes a lot of investigative resources to go after just one of these cases. Um, you know the, the Chinese government takes multiple-track approach. So lawfare, they try and use the U.S. law, and they say come in and say, "Hey, look, this guy stole A, B, C, D. You know, ten million dollars. Here it all is. We want him back. Repatriate him." Uh, so that's one means that they use. Uh, they will attempt covertly. To try and grab family members, you know, in in China, threaten them. I know people have been in on phone calls when they're being threatened, and their family members are, are back there being threatened um, in China. Uh, Dr. Han, as, as an example as well. So this has happened to a lot of very prominent pro democracy advocates um, and uh, Uyghur dissidents overseas, mm-hmm. globally. So yeah. there's that level of threats when it comes to official um, official uh, you know defectors. Such as uh, Yu Qiancheng or um, uh, Ling that we spoke of earlier, uh, you know, they're not in a position to actually try something like the Russians. I mean, you know, the Russians are, and it's not even generally the Russians. Putin has been incredibly mm-hmm. brazen about his acts,
2: mm-hmm.
3: and with the justification, he said very publicly, "Well, what are you going to do? You're prepared to lose millions of lives over this? A billion? No."
2: Yeah. So we don't know of any brazen executions, poisonings, and so on of Chinese defectors in the U S or elsewhere. No, um,
3: the the case in South America decades ago was a, a, um, let's say a story.
2: Yeah. And sometimes in the intelligence world, a story is as good as the truth. The story, the story was the Chinese assassins tracked down a defector in South America and drowned him. Uh, You put a Gimlet eye on that. You don't believe that.
3: No, and it doesn't matter. So long as some people believe it, say, well, maybe it could have happened. Maybe I
2: won't affect. yeah. Right, then it serves its purpose. Always great talking to you, Nick Eftimliades, and I'm sure we'll have you back to talk more about Chinese intelligence again. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. It's been wonderful. Take care. You can read more about Chinese intelligence from Nick Eftimliades and other experts on my Spy Talk page over at Substack. Next up, Gene's interview with former FBI senior official Jay Tab on law enforcement's challenge in dealing with domestic extremists.
1: This week, Canada declared the U.S.-based anti-government militia group The Three Percenters a terrorist entity. Members of the group have been arrested and charged in connection with the events at the U.S. Capitol on January 6. They also have been linked to bomb plots targeting U.S. federal buildings and the plan to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Canadian officials say the organization is increasingly active on their side of the border. And designating the three percenters as a terrorist group gives authorities additional legal and financial tools to use against them. The US has a long list of designated foreign terrorist groups like Al Qaeda, but it has not given that label to any domestic extremist organizations. And one of the questions I asked Jay Tabb, the recently retired executive assistant director of the FBI's National Security Branch, is whether it should. But first, I asked Tab, who is now Senior Vice President of Global Security at the Crisis Response Company, or CRC, if investigating domestic extremists is more challenging than investigating foreign terrorists.
0: That's a great question. Um, So the first challenge is that in an international terrorism investigation, uh, due to the authorities that the FBI has regarding material support to terrorism, the actual predication of the investigation and the mechanics of the investigation are easier because you're you're working on a reasonable suspicion that the person is an agent of a foreign power, is working on behalf of or has joined as a member of a foreign terrorist organization. And so that predication bar is really low. The activities that they're undertaking are not protected by any of of, of our rights that we have as American citizens here in the U.S. For a domestic case, of course, the, the predication is, is much more challenging because much of the activities that the individuals are involved in are actually First Amendment protected activities, right? Right to free speech. It is not illegal to hate in our country. And so that in and of itself is it does not allow you to predicate an investigation. Joining a domestic group like Adam Waffen or the Ku Klux Klan by itself is not the predication, uh, the necessary. Um, instrument to to predicate an investigation, it has to be that ideology and some reasonable suspicion of criminal activity, either at at federal or state level. And then then the FBI really focuses on the violence in the investigation. So what is the individual doing in regards to violence? And the challenge becomes um, determining when the individual is going to go from rhetoric to actually acting on
2: that violence,
0: so talking about violence is not illegal. It's very difficult for us to investigate that based on that solely on that, but doing the violence, of course, is obviously illegal. And so that, or the criminal activity, doesn't have to just be violence, but it has to be it has to be some activities that are designed to affect social or political change, right? To make to, to make some social social or political change in our in our country.
1: So would you like to see clearer guidelines than you currently have?
0: No, I think, I, I think we have clear guidelines about what we can do. Um, there are necessary steps in predicating an investigation that require, like, for instance, a little bit more uh, deliberate legal review. So they want a lawyer in the FBI to look at the predication of the investigation and make sure that we are meeting the requirements that are set forth by the attorney general. I think that's a good idea. That's a safety, it's a it's a safety catch so that we don't overstep our boundaries as an organization. Um, I, I think they're fine. I think the tools are fine. I think I would I would like to see uh, 23 US, US code 18 US code 2331 is the uh, statutory definitions for terrorism, and it has to do with domestic terrorism and then on the, into that series of 2332, 2339 where it defines all of the types of terrorism and the, and the, and the violations. There's a great um, definition of domestic terrorism. There just doesn't happen to be any sentencing guidelines or any articulable criminal activity involved with that that's defined by code. And so that's probably the one area where we could use help.
1: Um, and yet it wasn't dealt with in the new uh, terrorism strategy that was laid out by the White House. Disappointed?
0: no i think that unfortunately i think this is a natural evolution it's iterative so we're gonna we're gonna get we have more attention being placed on this problem by the whole u.s government not just components of right and what's going to happen is we're going to see some success in this area and uh there's definitely the, the ag as much as said that they are looking at studying the problem of whether or not they need to make statutory changes So they're clearly looking at whether or not we need a home, what's known as a Homeland Statute to address this. Um, Yeah.
1: So as you mentioned, we have designated foreign terrorist groups. No domestic groups have that classification. Should that change? Should Adam Waffen, for example, be designated as a domestic terrorist group?
0: That is a really, so the first, my answer is I don't think so. That is a difficult thing to consider. Um, and, it, and because of the right to free assembly, the right to free speech, how would you discern the difference between somebody who's just joined one of these groups to be a member and, and, and think that they're doing the right thing and, and, uh, and to have their voice heard versus the ones in those groups that are involved in criminal activity I think you'd, and violence? I think you have a very difficult time with that. And then the other thing that really, I think we need to, we, 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 we have this on our conscience and people don't say it, but I, I, I truly feel it. We are a democracy born from a rebellion. We are a democracy formed from individuals who didn't agree with the governance and formed into groups and struck out against the government. So we have to be really careful to consider in any way checking these groups because it's part of our democracy. It's the fabric of our democracy for people to have the right to say, I don't like what we're doing with our government. The, The fall line, of course, is when you take up criminal activity or violence to affect social or political change. Again, having an opinion, not illegal, fact, probably actually good for our democracy.
1: I'd love to delve a little bit into how an agent approaches one of these investigations. So first of all, how do you find these guys, whether or or women, whether they're extremists on the right or the left?
0: Yeah. So increasingly difficult to find them. A number of these individuals are very open in, we we have an advantage nowadays, right? Even 10 years ago, we didn't have these advantages because people are so digitally connected that you can see somebody's opinions on their open social media. It's not hard to figure out where somebody, how somebody thinks by simply looking at their social media. The downside of that is that many of the individuals that we're most concerned with have figured out that they're easy to surveil when they're, when they're being open about their thoughts on their social media. So they've tripped to using any, any number of encrypted platforms, but it's mostly the ones you know. and It's the mobile end-to-end uh, encrypted messaging applications or a, you know, a secret chat room that's, that's, that's encrypted that you can only get in there through, through a membership invite type thing. That makes it increasingly difficult for, for the agents to approach these investigations. Once, So the FBI figures out information about people in a variety of ways, right? Local law enforcement refers it and says, hey, we went in on a domestic call and we saw this happening in this house. You may want to consider it. That's one way. Another way is that he, we, we have a number of people that, that trust us with their information. They're, they're human sources. They provide information to the, to law enforcement, specifically to the FBI. and. And in doing so, we gather, we gather a lot of information about people. The other way is that if we have an investigation, say, on you, and we start to look at your communication, who you communicate with, who do you socialize with, where do you go on the weekends, where do you go for work, who are the people that you work with, we start to build out kind of your own network, and that gives us leads on other individuals that are like-minded that might be involved in that criminal activity.
1: What kind of restrictions do you face in doing that kind of tracking and monitoring social media?
0: So complete completely restricted in open social media monitoring. cannot do that at all. I know a lot of people believe that the FBI simply hoovers up the internet. Like we just we have this ability to like track everything that happens on the internet. completely not true. Um, just patently false. The, in fact, if you if we were if we had a case predicated on you, I could look at what you're posting on social media, but until I've predicated an investigation, until I've actually met the requirements to open an investigation, I can only look at your open social media if I have a reasonable articulated suspicion that you might be involved in criminal activity.
1: So you can't just look at somebody's Facebook
0: page? We we can as long as we have a reasonable law enforcement reason to look at that.
1: But you need to establish that reason.
0: So <laughs> exactly. therein, how do you establish I, the lies, reason. Therein lies the hard part, right? That that's exactly right. And and it, it's just think of it's increasingly more difficult if you don't even use Facebook or Twitter or you, you name it, right? Instagram, if you're not actually utilizing those. And remember also that a lot of people are completely anonymous in those pages. They're, they're using a pseudo. So they've, 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 they've decided to use a pseudonym on, even on Facebook and they don't use their real name. And so that makes it even more difficult.
1: What about chat rooms? Do they fall under the same rules?
0: They fall under the exact same rules. So if, if there was a dozen people in a chat room and, and, and the FBI had reason to believe they were involved in criminal activity, and you had reason to believe that a predicated subject was involved in that chat room, like communicating in that chat room. There, there does exist the ability to try and have a confidential human source get access to that chat room and discuss information or discuss, discuss things with the predicated subject. But you cannot enter that chat room if you don't have a belief that there's one, that one of your subjects is there. And that again, makes it much more challenging.
1: You've mentioned uh, informants a couple of times. How do you recruit them? How do you find them?
0: There's a, there's a variety of ways that you find them. I mean, uh, some people are willing to do that for patriotism. Like they, they actually believe that, that they appropriately believe that they're helping our national security or they're helping our government. Some people do it based on leverage. So they, they, have, a, they have a problem, probably more than likely some sort of a, of a criminal charge or sentence. And they're trying to do something to reduce that charge. Doesn't neither one of those is less valid it, it, because because we don't ever take any human provided information and on its own face value. Everything gets corroborated if possible, especially when you go to use that information in an affidavit for, for instance, for a search warrant.
1: Do you hang out at certain places where you might find people who could be useful for you, let's say at gun ranges?
0: So the answer is yes. There are there are ways to recruit individuals to become confidential human sources, and one of those ways is the frequent places where they might be. The problem is, or not problem, the challenge is you can't you can't not identify yourself. So you have to actually tell the person that you're an FBI agent. Uh, the rules. I imagine pretty- a lot of people turn
1: around and walk away when you tell
0: them <laughs> that. Uh, yes, it's been a long time since I handled sources, but Yes, you get a lot of nos to get to get a yes. That's correct.
1: So, are those kinds of informants more useful than putting someone undercover, uh, because they aren't governed by the same rules?
0: They are. So that's the thing. They are governed by the same rules. That, the difference is they're not trained the same as an undercover, who's a sworn, typically a sworn agent or a police officer. So they 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 are admonished and told you cannot break the law. You have to do things this way. You cannot. They're given pretty strict guidance on what they can and can't do. So it's not really a free for all. The, the difference is sometimes a human source will be able to collect something that an undercover couldn't collect, and, and or they'll do it. And, and, for, and for instance, for the first time you, you meet with them, they may say, well, I know all about this because I've been involved in this group of people for the last year and they can give you all that information. There's nothing wrong with that. That collection is not illegal. It doesn't break the rules. If going forward, they weren't given admonishments and rules about collection, and then they collected something that we determined was outside of, of, the, of the parameters for collection, then you'd have, a, you'd have a dilemma. You can't use it. You won't be able to use it. And it potentially, potentially taints the source if, they're, if they break the rules. So when you, when you use that source in any kind of criminal proceedings, you have to completely disclose if they've ever been in trouble, if they've ever mishandled information, if they've ever lied to you, any of that stuff has to come out.
1: You've also mentioned local law enforcement uh, as being a, a source of leads. So in the wake of January 6th, some members of law enforcement have been implicated uh, yeah. in extremist activity can they be relied upon how does that complicate their relationship
0: yeah Gene, I think it's a good question uh, and it's easy to answer they absolutely can be relied upon I think the individuals from law enforcement and even military who were involved in the January 6th event it represents such a small number I, I think by and large I, I'm, I'm still a uh, uh, member of the Inter- international Association of Chiefs of Police and I'm in pretty frequent contact with a number of senior leaders in law enforcement throughout the, the, the US. 99.99% of our domestic law enforcement absolutely will disagree with and would, I mean, we're probably just as devastated as I was on the January 6th events. So I think, yes, highly reliable, understand what the threat is. I think everybody woke up that, next, well, that evening and then the next day thinking, I don't think I ever thought that was possible, right? I mean, I've been around the earth for over five decades. I don't think that ever I, I, that never crossed my mind as a possibility. You know, are
1: state and local are state and local law enforcement governed by the same uh, rules of the road that you are?
0: It depends on the state. A lot of states have laws that that mirror the US government's rules and laws around this. so states attorney state, attorneys general, Will, will publish very similar guidelines for law enforcement in the state. Their, the laws of the state will reflect those things. A good example that you, that you mentioned earlier is the, the two-party versus one party, right? In some states, you have to have two parties consenting to record. In some states, you only have to have one party consenting to record. It's very, very similar. So I, I say that to say it's 50 different instances of what the rules are, but they generally mirror what the FBI has to live with.
1: What role does business have to play? I remember after Oklahoma City, there was a lot of concern, of course, about fertilizer, which had been used in the in the bomb and it was regulated and businesses were encouraged to report all kinds of uh, suspicious purchases. Um, Has that been successful? Has that momentum continued? Does that need to be strengthened?
0: So the the first the first answer is the role business plays is huge. right? Private sector has a huge Huge, not only invested responsibility, but but I think you know duty. Uh, honestly, to be involved in this process of national security, our our defense of our country needs private sector to be involved. And I do believe that the U.S. government in the last five years has gone really, really, really uh, uh, enhanced uh, and strengthened that partnership with, with private sector. Is it where it needs to be? Completely, no, probably not. Are there certain sectors where we probably need a little more outreach? Yes, but to your point, in back in '95 and beyond, the the FBI, the ATF, even DHS, when they were formed, they have a they have a mission mandate and purview to do a significant amount of private sector outreach. And we and in the FBI, we have a tripwire program which you referred to, and it it has to do with companies that either manufacture or sell or redistribute components to. Uh, that could be used in the in the manufacture of a bomb, right? That could be making an improvised explosive device, and those companies report with some frequency to the ATF or the FBI suspicious purchases that are being made. So that's a that's a win uh, that I think still I know still is in existence. I, it still is actually quite useful, um, and it's it's no different than. You know, it, it's a it's a li- it's a little bit of the I know people are tired of it, but it's, it's a see something, say something. I mean, unfortunately, it really is still that if you see some suspicious activity, you should say something to law enforcement.
1: Have online purchases made it more difficult?
0: Absolutely. So, yeah, without question, they made they've made it much more difficult because now you can purchase with, with some level of anonymity, not complete anonymity, but some level of anonymity. And you can make a purchase from this website for this component, and this website for this component, and this website for this component, and it might not show up the same. An example, you can walk into Home Depot right now, and if you purchased um, threaded pipe and end caps, and you purchased it, like 50 of them, you know, 51-foot threaded caps and 100 uh, threaded pipes and 100 end caps, that would come up as a tripwire purchase, and that would get referred. But if you went to online on Home Depot's website, and you ordered two or three of those every other day, and you ordered them, shipped the store on this day, and sometimes to your house, you could make the same 50, 50 pipe purchases and never gather that attention. So yeah, it makes it more difficult.
1: Family and friends have given up a number of the people who were involved in January 6th. Um, how fruitful is that pipeline for the FBI?
0: Look, I think, unfortunately, it's, it's very fruitful after the fact. Um, it, the problem we have is the bystander, known as the bystander effect. We have a number of friends and family who saw things before people do something and didn't report it to law enforcement. That's the tough thing. Now, that's, of course, people are, like you said, they're coming out and they're talking about it. I mean, one thing that, that's different about January 6th is I do believe that I, I think, and I'm guessing here on numbers, but I'm roughly right. 800 or so people entered the Capitol. I believe that probably about 600 of those people, they weren't planning on entering the Capitol that day. I think there was a little bit of a mob uh, fervor that happened. I do believe there were people that were prepared to fight with the authorities and to potentially enter the Capitol. I, I, I do in my heart believe there were some of those individuals. So my point is that a number of those friends and family of the 600 or so, they'd never intended to go in that day, just thought their family member was going to DC to go to a peaceful protest on the ellipse and then walk down to the Capitol, right? So they wouldn't have have even known to say something.
1: There have been hundreds of charges uh, since January 6th against individuals. Do you think that has suppressed recruitment and uh, stopped radicalization or has it perhaps increased?
0: Yeah, so the answer to stop radicalization is absolutely not. I do think that it has, it will dissuade some individuals from being involved in this. I think some people got a shock of reality that t- this rhetoric and going to a rally is one thing. You know, um, breaching, uh, forcibly breaching the US Capitol is a completely different thing. There's some people that were, that were charged, as you probably know, that are facing some significant exposure uh, 15, 20 year uh, federal, federal felony exposure. So pretty significant prison time if that go- if it goes that way. I think it will have a deterrent effect. But my concern is that, um, my overall concern is that it probably drives a number of individuals further underground and, and they will be less open, uh, openly communicating about their rhetoric and their thoughts. And... I'm really, really concerned that we might be headed back to, to a mid-90s situation where we could have another federal, federal building uh, incident happen, something like that. A domestic attack perpetrated by some individuals who have now gone underground because they feel significant law enforcement pressure around the aftermath of January 6th.
1: And obviously, those lone actors are harder for the FBI to find because they're not communicating with uh, their friends and and uh, confederates about whatever they're doing, right?
0: That's right. That's right, Gene. They are, they are incredibly insular. Um, they they are really anonymous on the on the internet, and so they have a lot of communication on the internet, but they do it all under pseudonyms. So they're very very difficult to detect. Those you know those types of and, and I think another thing that's really happened that's dramatic is that. The radicalization and mobilization to violence amongst the domestic threat actors has mirrored what we're seeing with the Islamic terrorists, with the jihadi terrorists. Um, we we're, were seeing an incredible, and I think this is the difference between 1995 when the Murrah federal building really happened. In 1995, there wasn't a huge 24, there wasn't a 24-7 news cycle and there wasn't the internet at, at the robust level it is now. So the amount of hate rhetoric that you can expose yourself to on the internet right now it's 24 hours a day you can be looking at, at hate. And so I think people can get radicalized, self radicalized in that way much faster than they ever could before. And I think that's really the challenge right now is that, you know, Timothy McVeigh, he, he surveilled, he went to Ruby, the aftermath of Ruby Ridge and the aftermath of Waco. He surveilled the, Mur- the Murrow Federal Building. That was months in planning. Um, I see. I think what we're seeing now—the thing that's so scary—is that the, the radicalization timeframe could be a month, and the and the mobilization could be a day or two. Because you, you know, the, the other thing that they're that they're doing is they're copying some of the tactics that we see from some of these Islamic terrorist groups. So that's the that's the other real challenge for law enforcement is that when that timeframe is shortened, you're much less likely to detect the individuals prior to the act.
1: And prevention is much less likely to occur.
0: It's almost, it's almost I hate to say it, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, almost, uh, <laughs> I'm a crazy optimist that we can always get it right. But it, honestly, it, it makes prevention almost down to a zero when you can't detect who they are. You might get lucky and they might be seen as they're you know, uh, going to do the attack. That has happened in some cases. Uh, and and then and then local law enforcement bears the brunt of of these things right right at the outset because they are the first responders in these events.
1: So what do you think is going to happen over the next uh, year or two? If prevention is that difficult, and uh, political polarization, and let me add, although we've been framing this largely in terms of the events of January sixth and extremism on the right, there is also extremism on the left. And some people have posited to me that they think they may see an increase in that in response to what's happening on the right. So uh, my question to you, what's gonna happen in the next five years um, given this difficulty finding them and preventing them from acting?
0: Yeah, so it's great that you bring that up and I wanna make sure that I emphasize that. It, this is not a right or a left problem. This is an all problem. And what actually has happened in the last five years, really the last four years, is each side fuels the other. And so the events of the Charlottesville Unite the Right um, uh, rally and the aftermath of that, that brought out a, it was a catalyst point. It really was. Now, prior to that, we had a significant amount of social unrest on the left and quite a bit of protest around immigration laws and social reform things. And, and it's really where the, 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 the group, and I use that in air quotes, it's not really a group, Antifa came about. And, and what it is, is it was a, that is a moniker given them by the media. And it's an anti-fascist is, is what Antifa stands for. And it, it is nothing more than a moniker. Now, since then, a number of individuals identify that way, but they're not organized into some big, massive army. It's, it's just not that, that, that violates their own principles because at heart, they are largely anarchists. And anarchists don't like hierarchy and group leadership and, and formation of of, of meetings, etc. Um, that said, the Charlottesville event really was a catalyst for the right and the left kind of kind of kind of becoming more vocal. And since then, what we've seen with the summer, as so you brought up last year, the social the summer of social unrest last summer, uh, with a number of social issues coming to the forefront, we saw huge events where the left and the right Right. The anti-government, anti-authority from both sides, the racially motivated, violent extremists from both sides um, would come out to these events and they would actually that I think, honestly, that's the that's the five year prediction. The five year prediction is the stronger and more vocal and, and, and violent one side becomes, it's going to be met by the other side. And we're going to continue to see this growth. The only thing that will check that is stronger, integrated state, federal, local. Um, uh, law enforcement and first responders putting time and effort into this problem. And again, to your point, I mean, it, it, yes, more resources will always help. More, more resources to detect these cases and these individuals will always help. I don't know that we need different authorities. Um, I don't think that's the case. Uh, I, do think, I do think that there are a number of individuals right now who are upset with things in our country but that's not, this is not the first time in our democracy that that's happened. This is, we've, we've had a number of times, um, just think of the 60s around the Vietnam War and, and, and around uh, social change with voting rights and and uh, e- equity and equality in, in, in the United States. This is not the first time.
1: But we weren't dealing with international terrorism simultaneously on- and, and And so can the FBI and law enforcement handle both? Or is there a risk that as domestic terrorism escalates, international terrorists are going to see an opportunity here?
0: I think there's a chance of that. I think what, what I would say in my counsel and my, you know, up to the day that I retired, my counsel to the director was we, can, we absolutely need to resource domestic terrorism with more people and more tools, et cetera. No question about it. And we were on a steady growth plane. We've been on a growth plane for three years in the program. We just can't do it at the expense of the individuals that work international terrorism, because that is its own problem that requires a sustained presence by the FBI. The FBI is the lead federal agency for terrorism in the U.S., period. It is a mission and mandate. It's the number one mission of the, of, of the Bureau. So you can't staff either of those and resource either of those at the expense of the other. It has to come from somewhere else. Congress probably needs to. The, the FBI has been stuck at roughly the same number of agents for going on 20 years it needs more fbi agents america needs more fbi agents
1: looking forward are there groups or flashpoints that may not be on the public's radar that you see looming
0: i i think the racially motivated violent extremism is definitely the uh it's the most worrisome right now and it c- will continue to be so. Um, I, you know, based on the events of January 6th, it's possible that the numbers now skew anti-government, anti-authority, which a lot of those individuals are classified as. Um, but I would, I would predict in the next three years that racially motivated violent extremism will continue to rise. And it's always possible that we could end up back with a significant amount of abortion-related violence, or incels or others, but those will always be one-off. The, the events of a good example is, you know, the attack in El Paso, um, not last summer, but the, the summer before, that was a racially motivated violent extremist. And he was doing that with malice towards Hispanics. Um, zero, zero question about that. And that time, and he was, I would, Gene, I would almost tell you that he was undetectable prior to that. Like, like he, there were just not a lot of behaviors that law enforcement could have detected and potentially stemmed that. Um, at least in my review of the, of the aftermath of the information and what and what law enforcement knew, yes, he had been, he had had some criminal history, but nobody would have ever guessed that. So
1: we should brace ourselves.
0: I think we should brace ourselves in the short term. I, I have I have as I said earlier, I have severe worry about somebody who's who's decided to go underground and and is really insulated themselves and is you know is trying to decide what type of attack to do. I have I have significant concern about that. And I and I worry, I worry that people will not, especially close friends and family or individuals who might have some inclination won't report it. I, what I would say for, for our listeners is that these are these are exceptional, be patient please. This is, these are exceptionally difficult things to do. Um, not, only to, not only to figure out who these individuals are, but also to investigate what what they are doing and then hopefully being able to disrupt them prior to their successfully trying to do an attack
1: that was jay tab former executive assistant director of the fbi's national security branch i also asked tab if the u.s should create a domestic intelligence organization along the lines of mi5 in britain he said no that if we had an intelligence agency and a law enforcement agency the fbi there would be gray areas that could lead to confusion and conflict and dropped investigations. Of course, he says that as someone who worked for decades at the FBI. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Spy Talk. We hope you will join us again next week. I'm Gene Meserve.
2: And I'm Jeff Stein. Hope you'll come back next week and also pass a long word about the Spy Talk podcast to your friends and associates. We'd appreciate it. And visit us over at the Spy Talk page on Substack.
0: For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at
1: talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.